In the name of the living God. Amen. We lived happily during the war. And when they bombed other people's houses, we protested, but not enough. We opposed them, but not enough. I was in my bed. Around my bed, America was falling, invisible house by invisible house by invisible house. I took a chair outside and watched the sun. In the sixth month of a disastrous reign in the house of money, in the street of money, in the city of money, in the country of money, our great country of money, we, forgive us, lived happily during the war. This poem by the Ukrainian poet Ilya Kaminsky went viral on social media when Russian forces invaded Ukraine in late February. Kaminsky, whose family is Jewish, was raised in Odessa in the waning days of the Soviet Union and emigrated to the United States in 1993 at the age of 16, being granted asylum with his parents. He has witnessed the horrors of war both up close and from the remove granted as a political refugee. Though incredibly timely, this poem was not written this year. It was published first in 2013, a reflection on war, atrocity, and violence, both specific and more universal, and equally a reflection on privilege, denial, and complicity. Kaminsky lived for many years in Southern California, about eight miles from Mexico. He said he could easily have written, we lived happily while families were detained and separated at the border. We lived happily while another young black man was killed by the police. We lived happily while fundamental rights were stripped away, while people starved in Afghanistan, while another shooting happened in a school, a synagogue, a subway, while species were disappearing while opioids devastated communities, while the killing continued in Yemen, in Syria, in Ethiopia, in Gaza, while one million died of COVID, while fossil fuel companies and banks made huge profits as the earth burned. I'm sure you can add your own content Kaminsky writes that the poem is not a tragedy of elsewhere. On Tuesday with Father Ed and Mother Posey, I spent the morning at the cathedral for the renewal of ordination vows with my phone off. When I turned it on again, there was a message from my cousin in Texas who wrote, I just read about the shootings. I hope you stay off the subway. 
As I frantically Googled to find out what had happened, all I could think was, really, God? This, too? And of course, I'm very grateful that the shooter is in custody. But the issue of insanely available guns and pervasive violence remains. The issue of inequitable and inadequate medical and mental health care remains. I thought of another bit of poetry from the Sudanese-British poet, Warson Shire, also a refugee. She writes, I held an atlas in my lap, ran my fingers across the whole world, and whispered, where does it hurt? It answered, everywhere, everywhere everywhere. The suffering of the world is legion and it's overwhelming. Any one of these situations is traumatic and the list of them threatens to make us go numb. I was reminded of another voice too, this time a biblical text. It's not exactly one of our readings for today, but it is part of our liturgy. It's in the meditation known as the Reproaches. It comes from the Book of Lamentations. It's the cry, we might say, keening, howling of Jerusalem after the city has been devastated by Babylonian invaders and its people slaughtered or else carried off into exile. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which the Lord inflicted on me in the day of his fierce anger. The cry of the ruined city has been used by Christians to lament the crucifixion of Jesus, and also by extension all crucifixions at all times and places. It is a cry of unbearable sorrow when the world as we knew it has ended. Like the Psalms, it offers us language for prayer. When our emotions are raw beyond words, difficult to metabolize or articulate, it's a gift reminding us that we can bring all of it to God. I do not share Kadinsky's poem or Shire's or, for that matter, Lamentations, to wag a guilt-inducing finger at you or at myself. We Lived Happily After the War invites us to reflect on how we can live humanly and faithfully in the face of horror. The answer is not necessarily an easy one. I certainly do not share it to suggest that because there is suffering, we should live without joy, without the happiness that is ignorance, denial, or fatalism, yes, but never without joy. In these uncertain, challenging, shifting days, we need joy and beauty and gratitude and love more than ever. We need the grace of one another of the natural world, we need to attend to what truly nourishes us. 
And we also need to open our hearts and learn how to keep them open so that we allow the grief, the rage, the self-searching that come from encountering the pain of the world, which are part of authentic love and joy, part of really being present with each other, with the world, and yes, with our own selves, we let those things move and change us. There is no real love, no real joy without this kind of vulnerability. We're so profoundly connected, even with beings we will never know. So the question is really what kind of relationship we will have with one another. And it is to pose that question that I share Kaminsky's poem. This Good Friday, we come again, as we do every year, to the cross of Jesus. We ponder the interconnection of our particular stories with the great central story of our faith. And we are reminded of Jesus' profound solidarity with us. This is the core message of the Incarnation. The Word has become flesh and dwells among us, truly human, truly divine. But in the Passion story, we see the depth and breadth of Jesus' humanity on full display. He dies. He dies as humans do. And he does not die an easy death in old age at home in bed. He dies as a political criminal, falsely accused, rushed to judgment in a trumped-up trial, tortured, lynched, and hung up in shame on a tree for the whole world to see. In a way that I do not fully understand, but before which I bow and tremble, as the song says, his horrific death expresses God's loving presence with us no matter what. No matter what. In Jesus' loving commitment, we see that God does not abandon us, though we do terrible things to one another. God stays. God stays with us as victims, with us as befuddled bystanders, even with us as perpetrators, for we can be all of these things. A few minutes ago, we read from Isaiah about the mysterious suffering servant of God. We don't know who the prophet's message was about originally, perhaps the people of Israel or the prophet himself or someone yet to come. But especially today, this servant song reminds Christians of the passion of Jesus. He poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This solidarity, not only with all humanity, but especially with the outsiders, the poorest, the guilty, with prisoners and those condemned to death, does not mean 
that Jesus died because we are so bad that God demands his death in order to forgive us or save us from hell. I do not believe that God ever desires suffering, nor that God requires Jesus' death or ours in this sadistic way, but rather that God is revealed in Jesus' steadfast love for his friends and even for his enemies. His death proclaims the length to which love will go in service of God's kingdom of justice, mercy, and mutual care. Today, as we read John's Passion, with its highly problematic language about the Jews, it's so important to say that it is not the Jews who killed Jesus. Jesus was a Jew himself, of course, as were all his first disciples. Some of the religious leaders of Jesus' day were threatened by Jesus' ministry. Some were compromised by their cozy relations with imperial power, and that is a very contemporary story. Those of us who lead faith communities do well to hear the words about their failings and temptations as cautionary for us. John's language also reflects his community's experience of separating from the synagogue, but its uses and interpretations in the 2,000 years since have led to the othering, the vilification, persecution, and yes, mass murder of God's beloved people, our Jewish siblings. This is yet another evil that we confront on this day. You will see that we are using some new prayers that repent of the hurt that Christians have done to the Jewish people. This is a liturgical work in progress, necessary and way overdue. In fact, Jesus was killed by the imperial power of Rome, keeping brutal order, as empires do in an occupied province, threatened by the possibility that an itinerant prophet might gain a big following. And Jesus' death is the consequence of Jesus' faithful life, his proclaiming good news to the poor and liberation to the captives, healing for those who suffered in body or soul, and radical welcome to absolutely everybody. The Romans were wrong in thinking that Jesus was a zealot preparing to lead an insurrection against their rule, but they were more correct than they could ever have imagined that Jesus' way of nonviolent boundary crossing, of generous self-giving love, was a profound threat, is a profound threat, to the domination of empires. A number of the characters in John's passion story speak to the issues of complicity and responsibility in the face of evil and suffering. There's Judas, who betrayed Jesus, an intimate who became an enemy, a collaborator. His motivations have been questioned ever since. 
Was he disillusioned with how Jesus' movement was going? Was he trying to force Jesus' hand? Was he tempted by greed in the street of money, as the poem says? Does he fully recognize what he's doing, or is he carried along as events get out of hand? John's text says Satan, the adversary, entered into him. Sometimes evil is not fully intelligible. And then there's Peter, often our closest stand-in in the Gospels, impetuous, devoted, and so often just not getting it. In his denial of Jesus, we see how his best intentions and his real love are overwhelmed by fear. How does gut-wrenching fear impact us in the face of threat? Do we cling to safety and anonymity? Have we denied our deepest loves and convictions? Peter weeps bitterly because of his failure. It breaks his heart, and it breaks it profoundly open. Thank God this is not the end of Peter's story or ours. But what about Pilate, the Roman governor? He tries to engage Jesus in an abstract discussion of truth. And he marvels that this condemned prisoner shows so little interest in going along with him to save his skin. Pilate keeps insisting that he does not really want to execute Jesus. That he's pressured by the religious leaders or by the bloodthirsty crowd. As if he does not hold the power of Rome to make life and death decisions as if the crucifixion of political prisoners is not something only Rome can command. Pilate keeps pretending that the responsibility isn't really his, as if his regret somehow wipes away his guilt. His refusal to own his own power and privilege, along with the seduction of wealth and profit, in the city, the great city of money, may be a particularly uncomfortable mirror for us today. But there are also some who do not abandon Jesus. In John's Gospel, and only in John's Gospel, we find this little band at the foot of the cross. Jesus' mother, her sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. With them is a lone male disciple, the unnamed one whom Jesus loved. From the cross, Jesus speaks to his mother and the beloved disciple with such tenderness, and he gives them into each other's care. Woman, behold your son. Son, 
Behold, your mother. In the midst of unspeakable loss, out of trauma and grief, love tends to need. Jesus' care for these dear ones creates a new family, a new community. They will love each other for his sake and for their own. For John, this is a theological statement about the church, the beloved community, and about how Jesus' mother becomes the mother of all believers. And on the most basic human level, it is about how we need and find families of faith, sometimes in extremis, how we are given the most unexpected people to love. How do we live faithfully in times when the world seems to be ending? Well, we pray. Sometimes we pray with words and sometimes with no words. We try to bring everything, our grief, our rage, our fear, our compassion and longing, exhaustion, and love to God. We stay. We don't wallow and we don't evade. We tend to what it is that breaks our hearts and breaks them open. The suffering right in front of us. And from that experience, we may discern what is ours to do and who is ours to love and how best to care for one another. Maybe we will find that out of grief and compassion, this care begins to extend to those who are not right in front of us, who don't look like us or have experiences like ours, and we begin to get more proximate, to stand in solidarity, to witness with the crucified ones of our day, and to tear down the crosses when we can. We hold on to each other. We do what we can, and sometimes we reach the end of our capacity. I remember another world-shaking time just after September 11, 2001. I felt desperate to do something, anything useful. Of course, I held to my community, attended to my people, and later I discovered other ways to serve. But in that early chaos and confusion, I felt really helpless. And that added to my profound anxiety about how out of control everything had suddenly become. Four or five days after the attacks, I decided to stop trying to do anything. So I went to the botanical gardens. It occurred to me that most everyone I knew in the city had similar feelings of frustrated desire to be of use, and that masked so much appalled and appalling fear. I thought, these are my feelings, and maybe they're more than just mine. They're my helplessness and the 
helplessness. And so I lay on the ground, and I let the earth hold me. And I tried to be as present with my helplessness and the helplessness as I could, to offer it up as the only prayer I could make at that time. Jesus says, it is finished. He bows his head and hands over his spirit. He lets go into the mystery of God. The final and deepest invitation of Good Friday is trust. Jesus dies, and we bear witness as we too are called to surrender all our struggles, our guilts, our griefs, and our fears, all our hopes and loves for ourselves and the anguish of the world at the foot of the cross. On Good Friday, we enter into darkness and not knowing. Let us rest our weary, broken, open hearts and wait together. Not first for something we will do, but for something that God will do. Out of the depths. Amen.